Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Aquarium of the Pacific. My name is Sandy Troutwine, and I'm the Vice President of Animal Husbandry here at the Aquarium. I would like to ask everyone to please silence or turn off their, their cell phones or mobile devices during the presentation. Thank you for your cooperation. First, I would like to say thank you to our lecture sponsors, the Gazette Newspapers and the Courtyard Marriott. Tonight, I am pleased to welcome Josie Islin. Islin, I'm so sorry, Josie. <laughs> Islin, who will discuss her new book, The Curious World of Seaweed, who I should mention will be available. Josie will be available after the lecture tonight. We are selling uh, this amazingly beautiful, if you haven't seen this book yet, it's a visual treat. And um, I encourage everyone to check it out, and Josie will be available afterwards for a book signing. So Josie is an artist that uses flatbed scanner and computer for generating imagery and exhibits on a large scale fine art prints at select galleries and museums. In her new book, The Curious World of Seaweed, Josie combines essays and imagery to explore seaweed and kelp from the Pacific coast. As part of tonight's lecture, Josie's book is available for purchase tonight in our Pacific Collections gift store, and Josie, as I mentioned, will be available for book signing. It's my pleasure to welcome Josie Islin. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy. Um, I am absolutely delighted to be here at the Aquarium of the Pacific. I got a chance this afternoon to uh, wander around a few of the exhibits, and I just had a little bit of a special tour of some of the algae in uh, the um, in the aquaria out there. Um, so that was very exciting. No, it's great. It's really great. So um, these are the, uh, this is the book that um, that was mentioned twice already, The Curious World of Seaweed. And what I thought I'd do tonight is take you through my journey as an artist into the science of seaweed. I'm actually trained as a, as a photographer. Uh, I have an MFA in photography. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in um, something called visual and environmental studies, and everybody thinks that has all this science associated with it, and it had none. none. Um, it was a bunch of architects who uh, ran the art department at Harvard University. So I've really come to the science myself through uh, lots of, of great people in Aquaria and, and um, natural history collections and things like that. Um, but it all starts with the artwork. So um, I thought um, we'll just take you right into the artwork. Now, I want to I begin, though, by reminding us that um, that, that we have to just keep in the back of our minds the fact that these marine algae, the, the kelps and the seaweeds, are so foundational to our nearshore ocean ecologies. Um, these are carbon sinks, oxygenators. Uh, this is you know, the magic of photosynthesis, which is generating uh, all of the seaweeds and kelps that we're going to see. Um, kelps and seaweeds are eco-engineers, so they're creating habitat for countless number of organisms. Uh, and um, they're wave mitigators, uh, so, um, and they're the base of the food chain, primary uh, producers. So that's just you know, a very, very quick like, low down on how important they are. Uh, and now we'll think about how beautiful they are. Um, I've been using my flatbed scanner as a camera for many, many, many years. Uh, and uh, I was producing a book called Beach, a Book of Treasure in about 2009, and I wanted to um, 
kind of portray and talk about everything we find at the beach as a portal uh, into our ocean world. And I started um, using the transparency adapter of my scanner to capture the seaweeds. And that's how I'm able to capture this incredible translucent quality to them. I then started printing them not only on big fine art paper, but also onto fabric. In fact, it all started with the idea of, of creating shower curtains out of the seaweed. Um, and I realized that these curtains are very flexible in terms of all sorts of installations. So this is the seaweeds printed uh, big 94 inch high on this ripstop fabric uh, in a gallery installation in Alameda. And we have the wonderful erythrophyllum, uh, one of the rosy reds um, that's very common on our California coast, the great egregia menziesii, or, um, or feather boa kelp, which we'll talk quite a bit about tonight. Um, we have palmaria here, and then we have the macrocystis, or giant kelp, which you all are very familiar with down here. Um, I was able to uh, do another installation. Uh, this one was in a rather underutilized uh, shopping center on the island of Alameda, and the Alameda Arts Commission had commissioned a number of artists to try to revitalize some of the empty storefronts. Uh, and they actually had a big festival that went on there, um, and I was asked to come in and do something with the old video store, which had uh, been abandoned for four or five years, as you can imagine. And so I took the opportunity to really enliven it with this very large scale kelp and seaweed. Um, so that was the macrocystis, and this is the neriocystis, the great bull kelp, uh, and the palmaria down there. And for me, it was just a wonderful, wonderful event. There were children's performances, there was musical productions, there were food vendors, there was just so much um, activity and people going by these kelp and seaweeds that really it's just so hard to encounter them and you guys are all probably beach walkers and ocean goers but people who don't get to the shore really don't have an opportunity to encounter the seaweeds and the kelps so how can we bring their story uh, out to them and this was one way to do it. Um, I also uh, really love it when I get to pair up with um, the scientists who are studying uh, seaweeds and kelps. And this uh, was an installation in a gallery in New Haven where the Northeast Algal Society was having their annual uh, meeting. And uh, I was asked to come as the artist. And um, how's, the, how's the vision? How is it? You, is it bright enough out there? You guys seeing it OK? Yeah. OK, great. Um, the, 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 I got to hang these curtains, and then uh, I did a talk in the gallery um, that was the meeting, the first meeting, the first um, meeting of that larger meeting. And their mantra for that particular uh, conference was broaden your impact. Uh, so um, I found that the, a lot of the seaweed researchers are very generous and very uh, welcoming to me as an artist uh, to come in to learn from them and then be able to take their stories out to a broader public. Um, one of the things I loved about this particular meeting was there were some other spaces in the gallery where I hung these large prints, uh, and as, as you can see here. And what I loved about it was that these prints, which were very beautiful, were actually printed in a science lab. So the um, chief organizer of this particular conference, I sent him the files, and he printed them up in his science lab, and they were absolutely beautiful. So that lovely confluence of art and science was really uh, a joy. Um, so I started out making these very straight-ahead portraits of the seaweeds, like you see here on the left, of the erythrophyllum. Um, and that's what this first book 
Uh, and Ocean Garden, The Secret Life of Seaweed, is really full of these uh, straight-ahead scans uh, where the color and the form is just pow, you know, really um, very intense. And then I've progressed into making more complex imagery, uh, a little bit more abstraction is brought in, but there's always the, the, the specimen itself is always still, um, still kind of visible and identifiable. This is the great Halosachion, and I don't know whether you get Halosachion down here uh, on, your, on your rocky reefs. Certainly up around San Francisco, um, the tide pools that I'm in up there um, have plenty of Halosachion that start springing up in the springtime, these fingers uh, of um, this wonderful marine algae that grows in clusters. Now these guys take a different strategy towards um, keeping themselves hydrated when the tide goes out. So all than, than many of the other algae. So all the seaweeds have to deal with this extreme environment of the intertidal zone, where, whereby their world, the ocean, gets kind of sucked out and then comes back in. And this is something that's hard for us to even imagine. I mean, imagine if our atmosphere just was like, you know, sucked out every six hours and then came flooding back in. Well, we can't even go there. So these guys have all developed different strategies for surviving that desiccating uh, and drying time of low tide. And Halosachion actually hydrate from within. So they have whole little oceans inside of them. And they actually have pores up at the tip. Uh, and if you find them and you squeeze them, they'll actually uh, squeeze water out, like a nipple, in fact. Um, so yeah, anyone who's breastfed knows exactly like <laughs> it's exactly what it's like. Um, so this is another, this is called Gloeosiphonia. And uh, these are some historic pressings that were found and carefully uh, pressed out in the 1880s or 1890s and are in the collection at the herbarium at UC Berkeley, which houses all of the, uh, the, the marine algae collections of the West Coast have all been consolidated at the University and Jepson herbariums at UC Berkeley. Um, and then I overlaid some other color uh, on top of it from some other algae. But it's just to show there is this unbelievable diversity of form and color amongst the marine algae of our California coast. The marine algae of California, which is the basic flora written in 1976, um, uh, lists about 750 species. And there are at least, and that was published in 76, and there's been about 100 more since then that have been named. And between this and, and the last one, I mean, the, the differences are just so unbelievable and fabulous. And as a visual artist, it's a world that continues to inspire me no end. Um, you can see as a designer what fun I had here, where um, the wonderful Maziella Volans, which is over there on the right, uh, really, it really is this incredible spoon-shaped, uh, fabulously magenta purple color. Um, and uh, I got to pair that with these agresia pods, uh, which are very whimsical, and the agresia is the feather boa kelp, and it has these pneumatocysts that keep it afloat when the tide comes in, um, and, and, and these whimsical blades. And, and long ago, I really fell in love. I, was, I, was asked, I fell in love with agresia. In fact, I was asked today if I had a, a favorite seaweed or kelp, and the agresia always comes to mind because it's so foreign to us, uh, um, uh, to us kind of land lovers. Uh, it, it doesn't really map onto anything that we recognize in our plant world. Um, and I thought that it deserved to have that honor 
uh, of those posters that you might hang in your kitchen that you know, usually is of ferns or um, mushrooms or heirloom peaches. I saw one recently. Uh, well, I think, I think that kelp pods uh, deserve to be right in that place of honor as well. So here is the egregia, the feather boa kelp. Uh, this was a specimen uh, that I found uh, at Fort Funston, which is the beach that I walk very, very regularly up in San Francisco. So most of these specimens that I'm, I'm making this imagery out of are found as rack. And it turns out what's great to talk to your aquarists here is that, in fact, the rack is used often uh, as uh, the displays in, in, the show, in, in what you use in the aquarium. Um, so this has got this jazzy quality. And what I found about feather boa kelp is that I actually have to get it back uh, into my studio and onto my scanner and scan quite quickly. Uh, many other kelps or seaweeds can last a few days, uh, but the feather boa kelp, it turns dark and it loses all its fabulousness uh, once um, it hasn't been around the ocean for too long. So I have to scan it quickly. And one of the remarkable characteristics of the feather boa kelp is that it has this incredible range of, of shape, of form, of morphology. And it uh, is incredibly um, adaptive to different ocean conditions. Uh, and so it just as easily um, might be very spindly, like you have on the left there, as uh, it might be kind of more substantial, like uh, the one, sorry, the one on the right versus the one on the left. Um, it used to be thought that it was, might be many different species, but then in studying the history of the taxonomy, uh, it was decided quite a while ago that it would just all be one species, Agrigia menziesii, uh, named after Archibald Menzies, the great naturalist. And I realized as an artist that I could use the structure of the agrigia, the blades, like I'm using here, as kind of a layering, a collaging element. And I actually was inspired by an artist named Rex Ray, who is a San Francisco artist who really kind of walked this line between uh, commercial art and fine art uh, by making these wonderful collages out of organic shapes that he would cut out of papers that he would make himself. And I thought, I actually had just seen this fantastic exhibit uh, about um, Diebenkorn and Matisse and how much they actually, how much Diebenkorn um, took from Matisse as his inspiration. And so I thought I could do the same thing and be inspired by Rex Ray, uh, just using the egregia blades uh, as my collaging material. I also have been experimenting with the cyanotype technique uh, of, of photography. This is one of the very first, first ways that um, the process of photography was, um, was, was used. And it's a technique whereby the paper is coated with a light-sensitive emulsion. And that emulsion is then exposed to sunlight with a specimen or some object on top of it, shadowing uh, that, that emulsion. And when the exposure is over, you can wash out the paper, and where the emulsion was covered, where it was shadowed, the, the emulsion doesn't harden and doesn't turn blue and washes out into this lovely negative space. And um, there's a famous artist named Anna Atkins, uh, who in the 1840s was experimenting. This was in the nascent phase of photography, and she was experimenting with this process, the cyanotype process. And she also was a collector of the marine algae of the English coast where she lived. Uh, and so she actually made the very first photographically reproduced book. And it was 
uh, a volume of the marine algae of, of the British Islands, uh, cyanotype impressions. And she, um, back in, in 2009, when I was first researching her, it was very hard to come up with information about her. Um, and more recently, her work has become much more known, and she's been celebrated as this great Victorian polymath that she is, and she's been a great inspiration to me. And one thing I realized about my process of using the scanner is that I'm actually working in this kind of tradition of botanical illustration whereby the images are being made directly from the specimen itself. It's a process called nature printing. And the cyanotype process is a nature printing process. There were some other techniques where prints, where botanical specimens would actually be put in the printing press and, um, and the plates would be pressed by it. And I realized that my scanner is in the same vein. I'm, I'm imaging directly from the specimen. So I figured I could actually combine my scans with these cyanotypes that I was making. So here we have an image of Pikea californica a beautiful rosy red seaweed that's pretty common on our coast. And um, I made with his cyanotype out in my backyard, uh, and then I took the scan from the same specimen and kind of layered it into the cyanotype. And this is a whole group of work that I'm, I'm excited about and I'm exploring now uh, with, other, with other specimens. So um, after an ocean garden was, was made, I just was done. It was published in 2014. I, I just couldn't go away from the seaweeds. There's just so much about this world that I wanted to continue to explore. And I wanted to take a deeper dive into these particular iconic species from our coast. So, um, and I wanted to not only explore them visually, but I wanted to generate these much more substantial essays about their life histories and also the history of the science behind them. And the history of the science is also often about their taxonomy. Who has been naming, who has been really looking at these particular odd species of seaweed on our California coast and then naming them or regrouping them uh, according to the knowledge of the time? And what I found is that this process of the history of the taxonomy had a visual component to it. And that, of course, was for me so inspiring. And what you see here, are the layers, or the panels of a big, huge lithograph made of that agresia or feather boa kelp that was published in 1853 with the first description of that particular kelp. And the description, um, which, and, and, and agresia exists only on the west coast of North America. Um, it was collected by a Russian sailor and it was sent back to Russia to the Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg, and it was described by a botanist named Franz Josef Ruprecht, a, one of the many German scientists who were in Russia at the time uh, at the Academy of Sciences there. And he published these amazing, um, almost life-size lithographs of the particular uh, species or organism. And so I thought it would be really cool to kind of have a conversation between my contemporary scans and these historical visual documents. So that's what you see here, my scans of the feather boa kelp and some of its pods with um, this amazing lithograph. And that one on the right there, it actually, when you unfold all nine panels, it's actually taller than I am. And I had the great opportunity to, um, to scan these, uh, these historical lithographs. 
Um, this is another one of the first ones I made where I've layered uh, the um, Costaria costata kelp on top of a lithograph of Dictyonorum californicum, uh, two really beautiful and very closely related uh, kelps from California. And this is nori. This is pyropia, um, uh, uh, the, the, the scientific name for nori. It used to be porphyra, and now uh, it's been recategorized as pyropia. And I have layered it onto a lithograph by uh, a guy named Alexander Postels. And Alexander Postels was part of a Russian uh, exploratory expedition to Alaska in 1829. And he it turned out he was the surgeon on board, but it turned out he had this fabulous affinity towards drawing and for drawing the marine algae, the seaweeds and kelps that they were finding on the, the Alaskan coast. So he went back to Russia, and from his notes and his drawings, he paired up with Ruprecht, and they made a huge folio called Illustrationis Elgarum, and in it are these enormous oversized lithographs of the seaweeds of Alaska. Uh, and these, the crossover to our flora down in California is huge. Most of uh, the flora of uh, seaweeds in California, their range extends up into Alaska. Um, so that's what that pink is coming through uh, from the pyropia there, from my collection of a beautiful piece of, of nori. Uh, nori is only two cells thick. It's actually in the red category of the seaweeds, uh, so it's characteristically stretchy. So if you go out into the intertidal and you pick up something and it has a little bit of stretch to it, odds are it's in the red category of seaweeds. Um, there's a wonderful story in the book um, about a, uh, a scientist, a brilliant scientist named Kathleen Drew Baker, and she was the woman who discovered the very complex life cycle, or she worked out the very complex life cycle of the nori or pyropia. Um, she was actually a scientist in England, uh, but um, nori is uh, one of those seaweeds that uh, inhabits all of the oceans of the world. Um, and so her research was actually picked up by scientists in Japan in about 1940. Uh, and in Japan at that time, they were having an absolute crisis in the nori harvests um, because there was so much pollution runoff uh, and there were some very terrible typhoons and none of the nori beds would regrow. And it turned out that the Japanese had never really cultivated nori. They had always just collected it so that its, it's, a, it's um, abundance would really fluctuate from year to year. And it was only with the, um, the information of Kathleen Drew Baker, uh, where she explained this alternate uh, part of its life cycle, its alter alternate generation uh, that has a very different form and actually burrows into seashells, that the Japanese scientists could pick up on that, start experimenting, and actually start cultivating the nori. Um, so, and they honor her to this day uh, in and around uh, the, the, the nori beds of Japan. This is the ulva. Ulva is the signature seaweed of the green category, and it is very green, and I'll go into a little bit more of that in a minute. Uh, and here again, I've overlaid it with one of these uh, wonderful lithographs uh, from Alexander Postels. And this is um, uh, another common kelp called um, uh, Stephanocystis osmundacea. Um, and um, because they thought, that you can't see it so well here, but these bottom blades actually uh, reminded the um, original namers of the Osmunda fern. Um, and that's the cover of the book. It's actually my scarf that I have on here. I've paired it with yet another of these wonderful, wonderful Ruprecht lithographs. Up in our part of the world, this is really common kelp. 
Um, if any of you are up around San Francisco and go up to Stinson Beach, this is the rack that is uh, all, all over the beach. Um, and it gave rise to the cover of the book. I had the wonderful, wonderful good fortune to publish this book uh, with a nonprofit publisher called Heyday Books uh, that's based up in Berkeley. And they do fantastic uh, natural and cultural uh, California histories. And um, they, I design the books as I go along. All my books I kind of am building in my computer as I'm scanning and writing. Uh, but then uh, I worked with the designers at Heyday who picked up on my design and really refined it and came up with this uh, wonderful cover. And I found out that blue is actually the color for 2020, the Pantone color of the year. So this is very good, good fortune. So what you see here is the um, table of contents. And I, um, like I mentioned earlier, I wanted to focus on, initially it was 15 um, kelps and seaweeds that are really the seaweeds that you and I will find out there on the beach. And what are the stories? What makes that particular seaweed an interesting um, story within its, eco its ecology? Um, and of course, I had to get to 16 because I got to 15 and realized I hadn't put pterygophora in there. And pterygophora is one of those unsung heroes of the kelp world because it's an understory kelp and it's not often, you know, doesn't rise to the surface, so it's not often surveyed or um, uh, uh, talked about in the way that it should be. Um, but again, I want to just, I want to just remind us that this is just a tiny smattering of the, the, the abundance of seaweeds that are out there on our coast. We live in an absolute wonderland uh, for marine algae. And I just would want to quickly kind of go over why that is. Um, the kelps all need cold ocean, uh, and they need nutrient-rich ocean. And we have the wonders of upwelling that happen uh, in the springtime. And that's when the surface waters are pushed off by the northwest winds that come in. The surface waters are pushed away so that the deeper uh, waters that hold all the nutrients uh, can come up to the surface. And this, of course, brings nutrients for uh, all sorts of organisms, not just the, the kelp and seaweeds. Um, we also, in Northern California, the continental shelf is very near to the shore. So again, um, that lets those cold, nutrient-rich uh, uh, waters come to the surface. And that coincides with the longer days of springtime. Uh, so you have a longer days of sunshine for photosynthetic uh, drivers to get into gear. Um, and that's uh, um, combined with this uh, enormous, enormous amount of nutrients. But we need cold oceans to hold those nutrients. So that's an ongoing, um, an ongoing uh, um, concern. And also, I have to say, the cycles um, are really, you know, you want, I don't think we can say we have this regular upwelling. At least, we'll see how the cycles go. But it's, nothing is as regular as it, it um, is sometimes described as. So that upwelling and those longer days of sunshine um, drive an enormous amount of biomass creation amongst the kelps and seaweeds uh, in a matter of months. So the, 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 the kelps usually start to grow in late February, early March. And those longer days of sunshine, those nutrient-rich waters just create an enormous amount of algal growth. And then by fall time, that biomass is sloughed off and often found in great piles of rack 
uh, like you have here. And while many people see this and kind of go, ew, mm, I don't want to go near that, um, I would encourage you, when you find the rack, really go inspect it. And not only is there this fabulous color and texture, but there's all sorts of organisms in there helping that rack to degrade. And those are isopods and kelp flies and all those little critters that are spectacularly important to bird populations. So it's good to remember that and the nearshore ecology uh, gets all of the nutrients that are broken down from this uh, algal detritus. Um, so shorebirds, migrating birds in the fall time, um, this is a treasure trove of nutrients, uh, and especially when they need the energy if they're migrating. Um, so important to remember how everything is connected. I love the rack. Oh, you never know what you're going to find in there. Um, and you often find just that, that species you haven't seen in a long time. And it's just a slightly different color red, and you just that's very exciting. So you can see all the different colors, and um, there are some eelgrasses in there. Um, those are also really important. Um, and so I thought what I'd do here is just transition into some of the specifics about the algae, the science of the algae. And so to begin, this is the image that kind of depicts the three categories of the seaweeds. Uh, so as your first, it's kind of the first step in determin determining, excuse me, what it is that you are looking at is what group is it in. And the seaweeds are grouped by color. Uh, and these color groups were established in uh, the 1840s by a wonderful scientist named, Will, uh, named uh, William Henry Harvey. And he was a Irish, he was a Quaker actually from Ireland based at the university, at Trinity University in Dublin. And he could see that even though the seaweeds had this very wide range of color, when he looked through his microscope, the, the spores were these circles of supercolor that really fell into these groups of red, green, and brown. So he established these groups, and they um, are maintained today. And they're really how we start learning about uh, the seaweeds. So the green algae, of which ulva is up there, is really, as I said, kind of the signature green. The green algae have just chlorophyll uh, in their chloroplasts. So they have chlorophyll A and B, and that's what's collecting light and driving the synthetic pathways. Um, the green algae gave rise to our plants on land. All of our terrestrial plants evolved uh, from some of the green algae migrating up into the near shore uh, environment and it taking off from there. So the chlorophyll of our plants um, that drive all the photosynthesis uh, in the terrestrial world uh, is from the chlorophyll of the green algae. Now green, the, the, the chlorophyll is very good at collecting uh, daylight at collecting the red wavelength that is the predominant wavelength uh, in our uh, daylight that, that we are so uh, attuned to. Um, but that's not necessarily what wavelength of light will penetrate the ocean waters. So the red seaweeds have actually developed two accessory pigments, a red pigment and a blue pigment, to collect different wavelengths, the green and the blue pigments that you might find underwater. So they need other strategies for being successful photosynthesizers with different wavelengths of light. And those red and, and blue pigments actually uh, kind of overpower the green chlorophyll, which is still there, um, and make these incredible colors of red and purple and pink and so on. And then the browns. The browns are actually a much later evolutionary line uh, than, the, than the red and the green algae. Um, the kelp are a subset of the browns. And it's only the kelp that have a pneumatocyst or a bladder. 
So if you find a, a kelp out there that has a, you know, one of those things you can pop, then you know that it's in the kelp group. And the brown seaweeds have a brown accessory pigment. And that brown combines with the, chlor the green chlorophyll to make these wonderful colors of golden, brown, olive colors. Um, and um, those are your three groups. I have a whole um, chapter just on color and the um, species that I, that I talk about in that chapter is this wonderful Maziella splendens. And Maziella, when you dry it, those red and blue pigments really kind of solidify into this spectacular purple color. Um, and that really is the color that these specimens are. Um, and then I've laid it into one of the cyanotypes uh, that I made of it. So I want to take you a little bit through um, the life cycle of the bull kelp. And I'm not sure you have any bull kelp. Do you get any bull kelp down here at all? You're really macrocystis. Every once in a while, I see somebody shaking their head. I mean, nodding their head a little bit. Um, the, 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 the bull kelp is the dominant kelp that takes over from about Monterey, San Mateo County, the Golden Gate Bridge, up to the north, um, whereas from about that zone, from about Monterey to the south, is where your giant kelp, or macrocystis, uh, really takes over as the dominant kelp in the subtidal forests. Um, and this is, um, I thought it would be a good way to use these two juvenile uh, bull kelp here as a way to just kind of briefly go over the um, kelp or seaweed architecture. Um, so every seaweed and kelp has a holdfast, and the holdfast's main job is to keep that organism attached to a rocky substrate. So kelps and seaweeds don't really grow in sandy areas. They need a rocky substrate to hold on to. Uh, that's what the holdfast does, and that's all it does. It's not roots. There's no uptake of nutrients. Uh, it's just very sticky. Um, now, the, the nereocystis grows into this very large uh, and um, heavy organism, and it has a rather small holdfast uh, in relation to that size. Um, and uh, unlike the macrocystis, which grows these enormous uh, holdfasts, well, the nereocystis, unlike the macrocystis, is an annual. So the entire uh, cycle, the life cycle of the nereocystis is completed in one year, and then the winter storms uh, tear it up from the ocean bottom and cast it either ashore or into the deeper canyons. Um, so it has kind of relatively small holdfast. It has this very uh, hydrodynamic stipe, just a single stipe, which is uh, the word we use for the stem. We don't actually really say stem. Uh, so um, the bull kelp uh, likes to uh, uh, grow in a very dynamic, wave-pounded uh, um, outer coast. Uh, it doesn't it, it grows in some of the shallower waters or calmer waters, but um, it, it really likes the, the rougher coast. It has a single bladder. Um, and if anyone knows the actual gas makeup of the Nereocystis bladder, come find me, because it's one of the questions I've been asked a lot and have put out there. And haven't, I think there's some carbon monoxide in there, actually. But that single bladder is working to get those blades, which is what we call the fronds, up towards the surface, where, of course, the sun is stronger, photosynthesis can happen more efficiently, um, and, and its whole goal is to get up to the surface. Um, in fact, um, oh, and here's a couple images of the juvenile uh, nereocystis, and I paired one of my scans with one of these wonderful lithographs by Alexander Postels, and it's to say that these organisms are so um, exuberant 
that it's hard to fit them onto the glass of a scanner or even onto the square of a page. So you have to kind of create this jazzy, this jazzy look. Um, so the Nereo, the Nereo start in the springtime, late February, early March. Uh, they start off as these very small kelp. Um, they, the, the, the very first ones don't even have a bladder. And this is actually how all kelp start. They're kind of, you can't really tell them apart. And then these uh, very small uh, bladders, maybe as big as a pinky fingernail, um, emerge. Um, and uh, again, this is with the longer days of, of, of springtime. Um, I've used in the book a lot of historical pressings, which you see here. And it's one of, uh, what I've tried to do is create this, a little bit of a treasure hunt within the book, where you can even find uh, data on the, on the um, specimen sheets that will relate to something else that you'll learn later in another chapter. Uh, like this wonderful young, young Nereocystis was collected by a woman named uh, the Mrs. J.M. Weeks. And she uh, was an avid collector of seaweeds in Pacific Grove on the Monterey Peninsula. And she would send her specimens. Uh, this is in the 1890s. She would send her specimens by the Fargo Express up to UC Berkeley, where the head of the botany department uh, had um, became really the grandfather of the science of the seaweed of California, William Albert Setchels. And they had a long, long correspondence. And she was an avid collector for him. And then he actually named a species after her. So there's a whole chapter on the Weeksia uh, that's named after her. So, um, so that was a little digression from the life cycle of the bull kelp. It starts in the spring. And in a matter of months, uh, if I'm talking to kids, I say between their spring break and their summer break, um, this mature bull kelp has grown. Uh, the the Nereocystis or bull kelp can grow 10 to 12 centimeters a day. Uh, and, and it accumulates this enormous amount of biomass. When you see them on the beach, they're so heavy. They're so, the, 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 they're so thick, um, especially at the bladder and the top end of the stipe. Um, and then they have to reproduce uh, before the winter storms will tear them, uh, tear the, um, tear them off the ocean uh, bottom. And here is um, just a, to, to, to kind of back up a little bit and say that this is the kelp forest in action here. These are some photographs by a wonderful diver photographer named Marco Maza. Um, and um, he has been very generous with his photographs and is very passionate about the kelp forest. And you can see how those bladders are just trying to get those blades up to the sunshine. It's also a good time to just re-remember how important the whole habitat of the kelp forest is for so many other organisms. I'm not really focusing on it in this talk, but just when you go out to the exhibits in the aquarium, I mean, all of the invertebrates, all of the, the fish, the rockfish population are hugely dependent on kelp forests and the health of the kelp forest. Uh, the larval stage of all these um, uh, other organisms depend on the kelp forest. Um, so many things hide and nurse and, um, so just to, just to fall in love with it all over again. So before it can get washed up by the, uh, the winter storms, it has to reproduce. And how the Nereocystis reproduces is it produces these patches of spores. They're very, very dense patches of spores called sori. And each one of these brown patches that kind of migrate out the blades over the course of the summer have millions and millions of spores in them. And you can see how here it's just fallen away. 
So by late summer, these patches of spores fall to the bottom at the foot of the parent kelp, which is probably a good place for a new generation of the kelp to grow. Um, and um, then the, um, this is a picture of when I was, I was um, snorkeling uh, a year or so ago up on the Sonoma coast. And uh, it was late August, so the spore patches were really evident, and then they were starting to fall away. And you really will see kelp that have all their spore patches fallen away, and the blades are like these tatters, or it's almost like dough after you've cut out all the cookies. Um, they kind of hang there. And this is um, of the patch, the kelp bed at Van Dam State Park. So if any of you have driven up or driven up Route 1 to Mendocino, the lovely town of Mendocino, you go right by this Van Dam State Park. And it's a place where um, lots of kayaking and divers and research, lots of activity goes on in this particular bay. And this is a picture of my friend Larry Knowles, who's uh, been a harvester of seaweed for 30 years. And he's out harvesting uh, in his kayak. And the picture is taken by Ron LaValle, who actually lives right nearby. And this was taken in 2008. And you can see this kelp bed, which has been there for who knows how many you know, decades, hundreds of years, uh, is very, very thick. Um, in two, 2017, when I went kayaking and, and snorkeling with Larry in this same kelp bed, um, I took some pictures from the kayak. And this was the, the kelp bed in 2017. And you can see how much more water there is uh, in amongst the kelp. Uh, there's very much of an edge to it. Um, and I went back up to uh, Fort Bragg. I went right by Mendocino this summer uh, to a seaweed uh, symposium that I was participating in. And I stopped off at, um, at Van Dam State Park. And this is the bay, that exact same place. This is that, this summer in 2019, August of 2019. There is no kelp. I think this might be a tiny patch over there. It's, it's just startling. And I think one of the things that was also really striking to me when I was there on the beach and kind of walking up the, the, the cliff here was how beautiful it was. I mean, it was a beautiful day. The water was crystal clear. There was nothing to tell you that anything was wrong with this picture. And I think that's the case with a lot of ecology, even in the, in the ocean. It's like, how, what are we forgetting to remember? How will we remember that this is historically a massive bulk kelp patch? And so that's one of my challenges for my projects going forward, is um, communicating uh, some of these historical stories, especially relative to the kelp, and in particular, the bulk kelp. So what has happened to the bull kelp on the North Coast? This, it's hit the papers quite a bit, but I thought I'd just um, go through it with you. Uh, this is from my snorkel um, that when I was out there a couple years ago, you have a very healthy kelp on the left. And then on the right, uh, I encountered this bull kelp that was attached to the bottom. It had a nice hold fast, long stipe, uh, a, a, a pneumaticist or bladder with these blades, but the blades had been captured by these voracious kelp-eating urchins and pinned to, the, to, to a vertical rock face. And you can see it's just kind of being munched away. Sea urchins are voracious kelp eaters. And in, in, a, in a healthy kelp forest, there's a whole balance of predator and prey keeping urchin populations in check. 
Um, and what's happened on the North Coast is there have been a number of factors, some warming ocean factors, and um, a decrease in predators of the urchins, so that the urchin populations have exploded. And, and what you have, what you encounter in these kelp forests is this regime shift over to what's called an urchin barren. And this is the urchin barren, and this is very, very common to encounter by divers out on our northern coast and in, in uh, the Sonoma and Mendocino waters. Um, so what, what in the past was keeping the um, urchins in check? Well, there was um, a, a very um, predatory sunflower star, starfish, that actually succumbed called uh, Pycnopodia. And this uh, starfish succumbed to the starfish wasting disease uh, that really swept the entire West Coast in um, 2014 to 2016. Uh, that has kind of passed, and some of the intertidal starfish, the ochre stars, have, um, have uh, recuperated their populations. They're coming back, and I've seen a lot of those in the intertidal. But I've asked diver after diver who's out in the deeper waters where Pycnopodia, the sunflower stars, live, and no one is seeing those. So you have a few of the big sunflower stars here in the aquarium. They have about 20 arms. Um, they're very effective uh, urchin predators. We also had um, a warm blob of water come down from Alaska and sit off the Northern California coast uh, for a year or so around 2016. And that added to the stress on the kelp forest. The kelps need cold ocean. Um, and so that also, I think, helped this um, huge population explosion of, uh, of, this, of the sea urchin, the purple urchin in particular. And then there is a context within which all of these stresses were happening. And that's the fact that the, a very effective predator of the urchin is missing from our northern California coast. And that's the wonderful and adorable sea otter, of which um, I spent a good bit of time looking at your sea otter here today. They're fantastic. Sea otter actually have no blubber. Um, so they have this very, very high metabolism, uh, and they have to eat about um, a third to a half of their body weight a, a day. So they are voracious hunters, and they hunt urchin, abalone, clams, crab. Um, they will keep an, an urchin population in check. Uh, but the, um, the fur trade of the 18th and 19th centuries wiped out uh, the sea otter population pretty completely off the entire west coast, its, its entire historic range, uh, which uh, was from Baja, California, up through um, the Pacific Northwest, British Columbia, Alaska, the Aleutians, and down to the northern part of, um, uh, of Japan. A few um, um, residual populations uh, had some of their otter um, uh, reintroduced in parts of Alaska, and those uh, otter populations are doing very well. Um, and then there was this refugial population of otter on the, on the Big Sur coast. But before that, before the history of that, I thought I'd just show this diagram that kind of shows pretty clearly this, um, what's called the trophic cascade, the food web uh, that um, has such an impact on the kelp, which is at the base of this food web. If you have top predators, apex predators, in the system like the sunflower star or the sea otter, uh, that will keep this voracious herbivore, uh, the urchins, in check. And there, you can usually have a lush uh, kelp forest as a result, uh, and with all of the benefits that go along with that kelp forest that we've discussed. If you don't have those top predators, you don't have the Pycnopodia sunflower star or the otter, 
These other warming events um, can really set off an urchin population boom, and they will eat down the kelp uh, in no time. And that's what we've seen all along our Northern California coast. Um, this is a picture of that very first raft of otter that were discovered in 1938 along the Big Sur coast. This coincided with the completion of Route 1. Uh, and when Route 1 um, actually was completed through the Big Sur uh, area, um, people got out of their cars and looked over uh, at the view and looked down, and, and the, um, this, this actual raft of otter was discovered. Within a, that was in April of uh, 1938. By March of 1938, a wonderful biologist named Edna Fisher who was um, a zoologist trained at UC Berkeley and teaching at uh, San Francisco State, was down on the Big Sur coast observing the otter. And she proceeded to observe and write some of the seminal papers about sea otter behavior. And um, again, just another pioneering woman scientist uh, that is not very well known. In fact, she was also pioneering in that she would bring her students down to Big Sur to camp uh, to help her with her field work. Uh, and again, this is 1938, 1940. Uh, she brought men and women down there as her students and really is, is um, an inspiration to us Why all. Why does that say $25,000? So this is when, um, this, this is um, a, an old historic photo and somebody had calculated what the price of the pelts might be that we were looking at if you, cal if you, if you added them all up. One thing Edna Fisher was very worried about was this value of, of otter pelts um, being re-upping re the ante and encouraging poaching. Um, so uh, this was something that she had in her archive and that she was uh, writing uh, vociferously about to, um, to try to establish some protected areas for the sea otter right off the bat. Um, so along with her papers, she also had these wonderful drawings of the sea otter. And what I loved about reading her papers and seeing these drawings, which she was, she was always describing the sea otter, in particular in the bull kelp. Um, and so you see it wrapping itself up uh, to rest, as they do in the uh, fronds of the bull kelp. And then um, she described in detail uh, how the tubular kelp, or the bull kelp as she called it, was the nursery uh, for the moms and their pups. Uh, the pups would be put in these uh, watery pools between the kelp where they wouldn't float away while the moms would dive down to hunt for food. Um, they also, the, the otter and the bull kelp uh, camouflage each other very, very well. And this combined with, um, I had been reading uh, the descriptions of the bull kelp by the, um, the, the postels and the naturalists on board that expedition that I had mentioned in 1829 uh, up in Alaska. And the naturalist there, Mertens, Henry Mertens, uh, was explained there that the, the Russian sailors of Alaska actually called the bull kelp sea otter cabbage because it was so much the place where the otter would play, would sleep, uh, would live in and amongst the bull kelp. So this kind of connection between Nereocystis and uh, the sea otter is something that isn't always uh, made to, to such a degree. This is my piece that's really an homage to the bull kelp of the northern coast. Um, I've kind of given it this ghostly inverted uh, quality to my scan and then combined it with this spectacular um, uh, lithograph by Alexander Postels that gives it this regal 
uh, quality of the, of the majestic bull kelp. You can see he even, Postel's even put in there these little patches of, he caught the, the sori patches in there, just to notice. So well, that's, that's, we can you know, have some questions about the bull kelp uh, after we're through, but I just wanted to show you some of the other spectacular seaweeds uh, that um, there are, this rosy red weeksia. Uh, this is the one that's named after the Mrs. J.M. Weeks. You can see the setchels here crossed out what it used to be called, Calamenia, and named it after, after her uh, because he appreciated her collecting and her incredible inquisitiveness about the seaweeds. This is the great Postelsia, the sea palm. And you guys don't get the sea palm down here, but when you're on the coast in Northern California and you get out of your car or you're, you're um, exploring the, the cliffs or the tide line and you are, look out at the most wave-drenched rocks, those rocks that are out in the, in the surf, that's where you'll find the Postelsia. They love um, the surf zone where the waves crash over them uh, they really are shaped like little palm trees, um, a very Western-facing name, I have to say. Um, and they go prostrate with every wave. They go prostrate, and then they bounce back up because they have these very um, uh, resilient uh, stipes that are like little tree trunks, But except for they're all this beautiful avocado green. Uh, they have these ridged blades because that's uh, how the spores um, actually follow those ridges to spill out right at the base of the parent plant. The, um, the postelsia, or sea palm, is actually a cousin to the nereocystis, the bull kelp. It is also an annual. Uh, so uh, once those spores uh, are, are set and the new little uh, postelsia come up in the springtime, uh, the parent plants are ripped up. Uh, they're often with the mussels that they grow on uh, and are cast uh, ashore. Um, I've paired it with one of these great lithographs by, um, uh, post, uh, by um, Ruprecht from 1853. Um, here is one of my collections just from the beach uh, of, the, of the Postelsia that I've put on my scanner. It even has one of its mussels that it grew on. They, it tends to grow on mussel beds. Um, and this on the, on the left here is the cover of the yearbook of the Minnesota Seaside Station. And Postelsia gets pride of place uh, as this beautiful cover uh, for the yearbook that was published by a remarkable woman named Josephine Tilden, who established the first marine station or marine lab on the west coast uh, of North America. And she established it in 1900. Um, and she called it, it was on the west coast of Vancouver Island in a very remote place near Port Renfrew. And if you ever are up that way, I encourage you to look for a regional park called Botanical Beach, which is where she established this seaside station because there are these fantastic uh, sandstone benches on which the algae is just very, very abundant. And there are these wonderful tide pools there. Um, she was from the University of Minnesota. So she would come out in the summer with a group of students, half of them women, um, who she would instruct to wear skirts that were uh, a foot uh, above the ankle so that they could um, operate in the tide pools comfortably. Um, and she had the wherewithal not only to build this whole seaside station and run it for seven years, uh, but she also published these yearbooks. And these are what we have uh, as the legacy of that project, which is pretty remarkable. One of the people she invited to uh, lecture was a famous uh, um, red algae scientist from Japan uh, named um, Yendo. And he described a particular coral and algae from uh, Botanical Beach. Uh, and um, uh, 
thanked Josephine Tilden for having the opportunity to come there to collect and then be able to study there. So the coral and algae are incredibly important to our intertidal ecologies. They form this kind of base layer uh, that uh, many, other, um, many other species are actually attuned to settle on, not only um, other algal species, but also uh, invertebrate larvae have actually got, there's some chemical connection between the coral and algae and, and these nascent um, other organisms. Coral and algae comes in two types. There is articulated coralline, which is what we have on the left there, and then there's, and it, and it is this kind of branching, um, uh, articulated uh, branching algae or seaweed, and then there's the encrusting coralline, and here it's encrusting on a bottle, but typically what you'll see uh, in, the, um, in, in your displays here in the aquarium, but out in the intertidal zone, is that it encrusts on the rocks. Now, the coral and algae have come up with this ingenious way to protect themselves from being eaten. Remember, there's lots of limpets and snails out there that are voracious algal eaters, they're herbivores. Um, and so there are many ways that the algae have devised to protect themselves. One way is to just grow really fast. Uh, but the coral and algae have taken a completely different strategy and calcified in their cell walls uh, and making it very hard to be eaten. Uh, but as a result, it takes a lot of energy to calcify, uh, so they never get very big. Um, the, the articulated coralline might only get you know, five or 10 centimeters over four or five years. They're really beautiful, and they are in the red category, so there's actually red and blue pigments uh, in, these, um, in these seaweeds. Um, this is your great giant kelp. Uh, the giant kelp, or the, the macrocystis pyrifera that is, makes up the great kelp forest, uh, here and of course off San Diego and La Jolla are very, very famous. They make up the great amber forests. Um, and uh, they are really, you, you really can't beat the great macrocystis for sheer beauty. It is just, um, it has this wonderful texture on its uh, blades that's called a rugose texture. And that texture, that rugosity, is actually creating a little bit of microturbulence at the level of the blade so that each one of those cells that needs to uptake nutrients is getting fresh water all the time. Um, and it's very, very beautiful. Um, so as I mentioned before, the macrocystis is a perennial. And it has these sporophyll blades, which is what you're seeing here, that have the spores on them. While the, the nereocystis, the bull kelp, had the spore patches up on its blades up top, the macrocystis has these sporophyll blades down by the holdfast, and they have a slightly different shape. And what that means is that the macrocystis can actually lose its top, whether because of winter storms or because it's harvested, like it was for many, many years by the Kelco Company down in San Diego. Uh, which harvested the great kelp beds down there for many, many decades. Um, and it can still persist, and it can still grow. And this is what, um, these are some of those pods you find on the beach that are this beautiful orange color. And I would always collect them long, long ago and put them in my pockets before I knew anything about seaweed. I was just so compelled uh, by their shape and their form and their color. And uh, that's kind of how it all started. Um, I'm not going to go into the agarum story because we're going to kind of try to get to um, the end here, but it is a great chapter in the book. Agarum or colander kelp uh, is uh, one of the very few uh, kelps or seaweeds or marine algae that actually um, evolved down both coasts of North America. Uh, so this is a specimen found in Penobscot Bay in Maine, uh, and it's also prevalent in Alaska. 
And the story is very much about um, natural history collections and how important they are uh, to, um, to translate across time and place. Um, these are some very, very early drawings of Agarum by, in a book by Gamelin that was published in 1768. And it was the very first flora of marine algae. And it kind of established the discipline of phycology, the study of seaweed, as a discipline within the botanical sciences. And he was amazing. And then 100 years later, um, uh, Alexander Postel's made these unbelievable lithographs. And it was called Algarum Gamelini after Gamelin, who wrote that first history there. Um, George Steller comes into this story. Um, it's a good one. So eelgrass and surfgrass, I just can't leave without mentioning uh, these guys because they are also, like the kelp forest, they are so foundational to, uh, to um, intertidal and uh, estuarine habitats. Uh, for so many creatures. Now, these are not algae. These are plants. So there's eelgrass, which is slightly wider, which is Zostra marina. And then there's surfgrass, which is phyllospadix, uh, which is what you find out uh, in the rockier reefs. So these organisms actually evolved back into the oceans from land. From land. They were plants that, that recolonized the oceans. And while the eelgrass recolonized the estuaries and bays, the surfgrass actually got out there into the rough water, and um, that's where it, it likes to live. It's rather an extraordinary story. Um, and they are flowering plants, but the, eel, the surfgrass, phyllospadix, has an epiphyte on it. Um, and that epiphyte is a beautiful red seaweed. Uh, it grows exclusively on the phyllospadix. Um, and it is lovely and red, and it's called smithora after the great um, uh, uh, Gilbert Smith, uh, who wrote the very first book on marine algae of California called The Marine Algae of the Monterey Peninsula. And here's some eelgrass from a wonderful scientist named Kathy Boyer, who is doing all sorts of great eelgrass restoration work up in San Francisco Bay. There's a wonderful network of experimental um, scientists using the Zostra um, because it's so common across the entire northern hemisphere. All these scientists have coordinated into a Zostra Experimental Network doing similar um, experiments and sharing their data. And it's, it's an inspiring story of collaboration. And so we'll end here with uh, just one of these images where I've put together a historical element and my contemporary scan. And um, I want to say one other thing about this layering of the historical elements with my contemporary work. And that's that it's been so much of a driver of my research. Um, and that's because it, it has this sense across of moving across time, that these organisms have existed from past into present. And then there's always this vector uh, that goes from past to present out into the future. And there's this underlying uh, question of where are these organisms going to be in this future with a very changing, uh, changing ocean. Um, so um, let's leave it there, and we have plenty of time for questions. and presentation so visually stunning and so informative. Thank yeah, you so much. It was really wonderful. Okay, so we have time for some questions. We have Linda over here and anyone over here? How do they reproduce? Do you, so, they, they cut. Uh, 
So, so the seaweeds have extremely complex life cycles. So they not only have um, a, spore, a, a spore component to the life cycle, they also have an egg and a sperm life cycle. So um, the, the greens, the browns, and the reds each, it's slightly different. But you have the, the um, sometimes what we're seeing is the sporophyte, and it produces spores like these kelp. And those spores, as, they, as I showed you, the spore patches, they settle to the bottom. And that, those spores actually develop into both a male and a female organism that are microscopic. So if we're just talking about, say, the bull kelp, the, the, that alternate generation there is microscopic. There are these microscopic organisms that are existing down in the bottom of the ocean, in the middle of the winter, where the waves are crashing. And somehow, one releases a sperm, and there's an egg, and the sperm actually finds the egg, and it's fertilized. And that is what grows into this great organism, these, those young, the young um, juvenile bull kelp that we saw. Now, the red seaweeds have an even more complex life cycle, uh, but they always often have this alternate um, that involves um, egg and a, a fertilization process. Now, sometimes, uh, as I mentioned with the nori, the alternate generation doesn't look anything like the, the spore, the, the, the one that we recognize as the seaweed. So there's a very common seaweed called the mastocarpus, or cat's tongue. It's, um, it's low. It's, we have it goes nuts up on our reefs around Northern California. And it actually is the male and female that we see that looks like this kind of rough cat's tongue. And one is very papillated, and, um, and the other is very smooth. And that's the male, and that's the female. Well, when those two fertilize, they make a sporophyte, which creates spores. And that's actually a crust. It's called a tar spot. So it looks completely different. Unless you knew it, you would never associate these two as part of the same life cycle. So that's happened a lot where there's confusion, and that's why nori was never understood. It was because these two parts of its life cycle were so dramatically different. It's amazing. But it's been evolutionarily very successful. So other questions? Um, what challenges did you encounter um, when you were trying to scan something that's so three-dimensional like the, the bladder of a, a bull kelp. Yeah, big, <laughs> big challenge. Um, I, you know, when I, when, I, when, I, um, when I hit it, which I kind of did with one of my very first scans of bull kelp, I, I actually had the great benefit of the time. My, studio, my, my son was a huge like, bouncer, and he, we had a big trampoline in our backyard at that time. And so I could bring home these big specimens and lay them out on the trampoline. It was this great surface that was right outside my studio. And something compelled me with the bull kelp. I knew it would be too thick, so I took a razor blade and just lopped it off so that that side would sit flat on my scanner. But then I have to, because I'm pushing light through it, I have this top element that I still have to get the light on top of it to, to have it push through as I capture the scan. So I've kind of rigged up a system where I would use stones to kind of hold it up at this higher level so it didn't smash my, those more sculptural um, specimens. So that one scan really like 
hit it with that big, uh, massive bull kelp. And since I had that one, then I really just scanned smaller specimens since then. And I don't do it, once I've captured something, I don't need to go out and collect that much more if I, if I want to illustrate something slightly different. But um, yeah, no, this, fortunately I got it with that one. <laughs> it was like. First of all, thank you for a, a stunning presentation. My question has to do with the macrocystis um, pyrifera. Mm -hmm. and the bull kelp, and the fact that they have nematocysts, which bring that kelp up to the sunlight. But some of the other kelps that you showed us don't seem to have those, and even do not break the surface of the water. So how are they getting that sunlight that they need? Um, great question. So. Um, so one of the kelp that comes to mind right off the bat is pterogophora, which never com comes to the surface. It doesn't have a bladder, uh, but it's very common. But plenty of sunlight gets down. Sunlight can penetrate. There are seaweeds that have been found to 300 feet deep. Um, so some light is, is getting down there. So the photic zone, that zone where things can photosynthesize and the, and algae can reside goes very, very deep. And so these chlorophyll and these accessory pigments are very sensitive to, um, they've, they've developed the ability to capture very particular wavelengths of light. And so if you look at a, at a textbook um, in marine algae, they can actually take a particular seaweed and they can map what wavelengths it is actually capturing. So it is definitely photosynthesizing down there. Um, there are all sorts of seaweed, the coral there are all sorts of seaweeds um, that, that reside in very deep waters. Uh, but it's just, in fact, um, there was some macrocystis, I think, that was discovered in some very deep waters in some islands off South America, some, somewhere down there. And so um, light's getting down there. Another question? I really appreciated uh, that photograph of Vendôme State Beach. I was there with my wife. We went kayaking there uh, this summer. Oh, yeah. And we had our guide naturalist with us. And one of the things I was hoping to see was these vast kelp beds. And when I brought it up to the guide, he, you know, he was really passionate what happened to it. And one of his hypotheses was, I wonder if in your readings you've ever encountered that, he was concerned not only with the blob, you know, that warm yeah. water, but also herbicides that he thought was washing out. Is, was there any research on that that you've encountered? Huh. Interesting. It's, um, it's not a hugely agricultural place right there. I mean, there's definitely streams that come in. There's a, a freshwater source right there. Oh. Yeah, you know, interesting. I, I will, I'm in touch with a lot of people up there, so I'll, there's a number of things. Um, one of the main divers for Reef Check, and if, if anybody wants like a resource of like great organizations to connect with, I know that Reef Check is, exists throughout all of California, and this is the, the organization that uh, coordinates volunteer divers to go out and survey the coast. 
and survey for all sorts of things. And they do a very, and it's all open source data, their survey data. And um, so the woman who, who um, organizes all of the reef check people for the North Coast is thinking about a lot of things on what might have happened. And there were these huge rain events in the spring, last spring. And one thought is that the, that rain kind of somehow in that very early stage of the nereocystis, a lot of them just didn't make it up into the next um, too much fresh water, and it kind of sat on the surface of the water. There are all sorts of things like that. That's where I was, I was kind of pointing out that this whole notion of this very regular cycle of the upwelling and the longer days of spring, it's just a lot of anomalies are coming in now. And so you throw in a little bit of, of the um, herbicide or a weird freshwater event, and um, they're, they're, the, the, the nereocystists are clearly um, very sensitive. So it is. There are so many people who are passionate divers up on the North Coast, and it's pretty heart-wrenching up there. Uh, but there are lots of people working on it, so there's good stuff happening. Um, so thank you. I think one more question, and then we'll let you do your book signing. Oh, yes, yes, and we can talk out, we can talk out there as well. Two more. Two more. OK, OK. <laughs> uh, I was just going to make a, a comment on that uh, you know, possible pesticide. Uh, or herbicide. Uh, the big problem is that if you start looking at it mathematically and actually put numbers in, the advection terms or the turnover rate yeah. of the water is so huge on this coast. One way to get an idea how huge it is is we're dumping the nutrients from 20 million people in Southern California offshore. That's where they're going, you know. Whether the carbon's going with them or some plants remove carbon, but not nutrients, you know, NPK. And we do not see any eutrophication that's measurable. Uh, and so that gives you an idea of the amount of dilution we're talking about when you have a, a current that is coming down the coast that is as wide and broad and deep. Yeah, and up there, the turnover is like. Yeah, it's and so the the basically the mixing totally dominates everything. So dilution, it's, it's, dilution to pollution. Yeah. <laughs> in the case of the nutrients we're dumping in in Southern California, it is because it, in other words, the n amount of nutrient that's in that flow is so large. You know that's what creates these upwellings is so large that what we're adding to it you can't measure. You know, it's just in the noise. It's, it's, it's the urchins. The urchins are eating them. Yeah. <laughs> urchins, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. One I'm, last question. Yeah, I got it. Uh, and this is kind of a historical comment, and I'll try to swing it over into a question or maybe another comment. Um, back in the early 60s, I was a zoology major at Pomona College. Mm. And after, in the summer of 64, I took a marine biology course at the Kirchhoff Marine Laboratory in Corona Del Mar. Mm -hmm. And the teacher was a Caltech professor named Dr. Wheeler North. Have you've heard of him? He he was legendary because he was one of the first scuba divers. And the point of it is, um, and this is part of the reason I'm here, he did studies on urchin deserts where there had been giant kelp forests. Yeah, yeah. And his discovery that 
you haven't mentioned, but he was, um, he found that once there was a lot of, um, I'll just call it sewage material in the waters off Southern California, the, the sea urchins, which when the water was clean, would die off once they chopped all the, 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 the holdfasts of the giant kelp even, which they'd get through those holdfasts. Yeah. So there was this natural regrowth of the kelp forest and then the sea urchins would come in and then they die off, kind of what you were saying. But the sea urchins were able to metabolize the, I'm, I hate to call it sewage, but anyway, that material. And so they would just hang around and the little baby kelp would not be able to get started again. Yeah. Kind of like baby redwoods if they don't let the fire go through kind of thing. So I just wondered if you'd heard about that or if, yeah. actually if you'd heard yeah. about Dr. North because he was well, I legendary. I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear about him. He probably dove with uh, E. Yale Dawson who was also very legendary and one of the first uh, seaweed people to use scuba um, to collect because before that they would just dredge. And there was also, and he probably was the Kelco company that ran out of San Diego um, and collected all the macro, the, the giant kelp for um, uh, alginates and agars and, and uh, phycocolloids. They had a whole team of scientists who were studying this kelp, exactly this kind of cycle of the kelp forest and the urchin barrens and the pollution. Pollution was a big deal and you'll see it in a lot of the, collections out there that there's a note that this was like pollution investigation. That's why these, these things were collected. Now the urchins, it is true. What a, one of the problems is that the urchins up north, they have eaten down all the kelp, but they don't die. They are able to just go into this dormant state where they kind of collect enough amino acids or something from the ocean so that they all they need is just a tiny bit of algal detritus to float by that, that kind of revives them. So um, there have been disease events in the past that came through, I know, in the Southern California it, um, that, that killed off urchins. Um, we haven't seen that in Northern California yet. Um, so yeah, there has been all sorts of, of cycles of kelp and urchin in the past. And all the stuff that's happened down here is um, with all of these many legendary, the, the, the Kelco group of scientists, which he probably could have been buddies with, um, did a ton of work on restoring. And right now, I'll just leave it with this, the Bay Foundation uh, down here is doing fantastic work on kelp restoration in the Santa Monica Bay and around. They're a wonderful group, and they're kind of being the model of kelp restoration for uh, those of us up north. So thanks. Let's go out and have some books fun. Yeah, thank you and so much, Josie, and thanks, everyone. I wanted to also remind you, to, uh, next week's lecturer is our own director of education, Dave Bader, who will be talking about the conservation of cetaceans. So we'll see you then. Thank you. <laughs>